All right, so uh, two weeks ago, I got my wisdom teeth removed, just the bottom ones. Yeah, woo. Um, and it was not fun at all. And then, uh, pretty much overnight, I didn't know it at the time, a giant abscess formed right here uh, under my jaw. Uh, went back into the dentist because I just was like, I'm struggling and I can't uh, figure this out. The dentist is like, yeah, you're just swelling. Um, and so then I, for the next four or five days, I was just, I couldn't sleep very well because of what this abscess was doing. I'll spare you the details. Um, and eventually it got to the point where uh, we called the emergency number for my dentist and they're like, you need to go to the hospital because of the things that are happening to you. So I actually went to the hospital and uh, they, uh, you know, they milked this abscess for me a bit, and it was really gross. And so, um, and I was on all kinds of meds and all kinds of stuff. And so I got out on Wednesday. And so uh, part of why I'm preaching today is I just didn't preach the last two weeks. And then next week, I'm taking our, our anniversary trip. And so I was like, I just feel I should preach today. Um, and so you're going to get a little bit more of a subdued sermon today, <laughs> a little bit more of, uh, yeah, quieter sermon, probably a shorter sermon. So, you know, I've, I tell you guys, when I go long, I'll give you that time back at some point. And so the Lord struck me down to give you that time back. So uh, he is working justice for you. Uh, so, so this was just, this whole wisdom tooth thing, it was, it's like, it was probably like one of the worst medical experiences of my life. Like, I've, I mean, I've had a pretty easy life, but I, it was just a really bad medical experience. It's thing, a thing after another. Now I'm pretty sure I got dry socket in this tooth and um, it's still hurting and that kind of, or this gap, I should say. And so in suffering for me, whenever I'm going through suffering, I'm just kind of like, this is just not the way things are supposed to be. Suffering just ma puts me in a dark place where I'm just like, I just don't feel like anything is right. I don't feel like any of my life is right. I feel like this is just not the way things are supposed to be. And I've just felt that over and over again. And, and what I realized is for a lot of us who, who found Jesus, who trust in Jesus, this is like some, this is a conclusion we've come to about this world. Like we, we've looked around, we've seen our lives, we've seen this world, and we just look around and go, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And many of us, when we began to follow Jesus and trust in Jesus, we found him alluring. We found him inviting because Jesus comes along and he says, let me tell you how things are really supposed to be. Jesus actually even goes, let me show you how things are really supposed to be. Let me remind you of how things were always supposed to be. And then he, and he makes this claim that it's through his, his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection that, that he is making the world into what it's supposed to be. And the text that we're in today in 1 John, it just reminds me of this dynamic, this dynamic of reminding us and telling us of how things are supposed to be even though they are not. And so if you're new here, we are in uh, the book of 1 John. 1 John is a letter that John or the school of John wrote to 
probably a, a bunch of the churches that were connected to John in some way. Maybe that the, it was the gospel of John was how they came to faith, or the gospel of John was how they were discipled into the faith. Uh, but First John is written to these groups of churches that are connected to John in some way, and, and it's trying to correct some things. It's trying to, there, there seems to be some kind of division and sin happening amongst these churches, and so it's trying to keep those Christians from sinning, and it's trying to bring them back together. It's trying to clarify some things, and so that's that's 1 John. And today, in the passage that we're in, it seems to me like John is just kind of out here saying, okay, because of what Jesus has done in the world and in his life, for those of us who trust in him, we are to live now as things are supposed to be. Right? Plenty of things he even mentions in this letter. I'll back up because I hear a slight ringing. Uh, Plenty of things are not the way it's supposed to be, but because of King Jesus and, and his way of things as they should be and will be, we that trust in Jesus live like him. We live into this way of things as the, as the way they're supposed to be. And so the passage that we're in today is 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18, and we're just going to talk about three things as we go through this passage. The first thing that we're gonna talk about is a very human problem. The second thing that we're gonna talk about is a very miraculous change. And the third thing that we're gonna talk about is a shepherd's lifestyle. Okay, so let's start by reading the passage that we're in, verse 11. I'm gonna read the whole passage and then we'll get to talking about it. So, verse 11 says this. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother? Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother? And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Okay. So right away in this passage, we see the first thing that I want to talk about is we see a very human problem. And that problem is hate. Uh, the, the, the problem is that often we as humans, we don't operate out of love, but we operate out of hate. And the word hate here in the Greek and in this context, uh, a, way to, a way to translate it would be to detest, to dislike, to detest. Uh, but, I, but it also could mean like to persecute someone. And so I, I think a good way to translate the word hate here, especially in this passage and how it's being used, is to detest someone in a way that you don't want their good or you don't care about their well-being. And, th and that seems to be kind of how hate is being used in this passage. And what we see in this passage is this is a very human problem. Hate is a very human problem. In fact, it's an ancient human problem. This is why John references that ancient story of Cain and Abel, where Abel gives a sacrifice pleasing the Lord and Cain doesn't. 
And Cain in jealousy and anger and hatred rises up and kills his own brother. And so I think what John is trying to do, do here is say, look, hate has been in humankind for a long time, and, and it could be in you guys. And notice it in you. So, so what, here's what else we find out about, about hate in this passage, is hate, uh, it's actually the seed sin in, in your heart to the outward atrocity of murder. That's what, what John begins to say here. We have to be careful. John isn't equating hate in your heart to actually murdering someone. Sometimes we do that as Christians, and that's uh, called moral equivalency. It's not actually what the, the New Testament does. But what John is saying is, he says, look, if you've got hate in you, you've got the seeds of murder in you. If you've got hate in you, you've got murder in you, even if you have not murdered. Your heart, when it hates, it's doing the same thing that Cain's heart did when he murdered his brother. And so John is pointing out all this stuff about hate in this passage because it seems like hate has slithered its way into the church in some way. Again, I think that John is really writing a letter that was very relevant to the churches that were reading it. And so I don't think he's just pontificating on ideas that he has about love and hate. I think he's seeing different things going on in the church, and he sees that, that hate itself has slithered its way into the church. And so he's bringing it up. He's saying, look, this is, this is in you guys. He, he, he was standing up, and he was saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This very human problem of hate is not who we are. And again, John uses this strong language to get them to see it. Throughout this letter, we've talked about how John uses this strong language. Part of it is the style of writing that he's doing, the style of rhetoric that he's using. He wants people to wake up to it and see it. He doesn't want this to condemn people, but he does want this to motivate the Christians to see what's in them and to repent and turn from that stuff. And so John uses the strong language, I think, to get those churches to go, man, is hate in me? Do I have the seeds of murder in me? And so for us, 2,000 years later reading this, I think we should read this and we should go, okay, is that stuff in me? Is that stuff part of my heart? Can I notice hate inside of me? Because John says for those that, that trust in Jesus, those that are following Jesus, that every way we live into that way of life that is contrary to who God has made us, that is contrary to what God has for us. It, it, it is a way of life that's much more like evil and, the, and Satan and what God doesn't have for you. And I'll be honest, every time I read this passage, I get a little bit overwhelmed because I, I just think I, I have too much hate in me. I wish I didn't, but I do. And so I read this passage and I go, well, this is some strong words for me. And so what, what does God and John want to do with that in me? And what does he want to do with that in us? I think he wants to remind us of a very miraculous change that God has made in us. Here's what I love about this letter. One of the things I really love about this letter is how often John kind of goes, this is how it's supposed to be. 
And the this that John refers to, the this that John says, this is how it's supposed to be, the this is love. All throughout the letter, he constantly is reminding us that the way things are supposed to be is love. The world itself, it, it's, it's so maddening, it's so driven by hate, our own hearts are driven by hate, and many of us are encouraged to hate more, and, and, and many of us let the, the narcotic of hate feed us. And we're so driven by it. And honestly, when we let that narcotic of hate drive us, many of us will notice how we just begin to feel tired. And, and deep down, we know it's wrong. But because it's this narcotic, we just can't let it go. But then Jesus, and then John repeating Jesus here, says, hate isn't supposed to be what's running through our veins. Love is supposed to be what's running through our veins. Right? There, there is so much uh, goodness in the world. But sometimes it, it is overwhelming to look out at the world and look in at our own hearts and see how much hate is just driving everything. And so then when you hear in this passage and many others throughout the New Testament that hate is what's wrong with the world and you need to replace it with love, it's, it's like a drink of water for those of us that see the hate in ourselves and see the hate in the world. And Jesus, when he came to make things the way that they were supposed to be, we learned that through the cross and his resurrection and his spirit, he would actually make a very miraculous change to anybody that trusts in him. Any human that has hate in their heart, God, Jesus, would make a miraculous change to their hearts. He would take them from being a people who embraced this way of hate and turned them into a people that can't help but love. It, it would, th this is one of the fundamental things that happens to us as Christians. That God does something to us and he causes us to be a people that can't help but love. We become more than just humans capable of love or can love. We become a people that have to love. We become a people compelled to love. And it's in part because Jesus gets to us in a way where we realize that Jesus was a man and fully God who had to love us, who had to love this earth, who was compelled to love us, and by some miracle, his love includes you and me. Jesus was someone who had to love us. He couldn't have come to this earth and not love us. He was compelled to do it. And so we as Christians, what John is saying here is, we don't, we can't, it's not just that we can love, it's that we have to love because of how Jesus loved us. We have to love. And I've noticed this in me. I'm, I think I'm really bad at loving. But then there are these moments where God just does something and says, you gotta love that person still. You gotta go farther. You have to. And it's not because of any, me. I'm not strong enough. Right? I can't even get wisdom teeth out without almost dying. Like, imagine how much weaker my emotional strength is. <laughs> God does a very miraculous change in us. 
And if you look for it and notice it, you'll, you'll see that we as Christians, we're not just, we, it's not just that we can love, it's that we, we're compelled to love, we have to love. It's part of who we are. And so, John here in this passage then, he gives us the model for, for what it means to love. And it's, it's, it's to love through a shepherd's lifestyle, through a shepherd's lifestyle. So the, the passage so far compels us not to hate, points out our hate, but then it compels us to love instead. But then the, the passage fleshes out in a few ways what it means to love, what it means for us to actually love. It's not just this far-off idea, but, but John gives some feet to it. He, he first defines love for us by, by what he says in verse 16, which I'm going to reread. He says this, This is how we have come to know love. He, being Jesus, he laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so love for us today in this passage and I say in this passage because throughout the New Testament, you're going to get all kinds of definitions of love because love is vast and big and broad. And my voice just cracked. Um, but love for us today is defined by how Jesus was the one who laid his life down for us, who laid his life down for his friends, who laid his life down for the world. Now, what's interesting is Jesus uses this phrase a couple different ways. Uh, when he uses this phrase. And the first time he uses it is in actually John chapter 10, where he's talking about how the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. And he's talking about himself, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. And I, I found this interesting. Karen Jobes, who's a, a PhD professor on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, she says this about what that phrase means. The quote will be on the screen. It says this. Jesus taught in John 10, 11, that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Although not unheard of, it is unusual for a shepherd to die for his sheep. More routinely, shepherds spent their lives caring for the needs of the sheep to keep them alive. This is how the phrase to lay down life is used elsewhere in Greek, where it refers to taking a risk for another, even, even hazarding one's life for another, but not to a sacrificial death. And, and the reason I read that quote it's because a lot of us know the second way that Jesus used that phrase where he says, I'm going to lay down my life for you guys. Like, and he meant when he goes to the cross and dies for them. And so Jesus has this dual meaning when he uses that phrase. And it's important for us to know that in that time and in that culture, that lay down one's life phrase had this connotation of a shepherd who day in, day out, took care of his sheep. Right? Sometimes when we only look at the second way of it, it kind of it stays this like far off only Jesus could do it idea or only like when I jump in front of the bullet for that person kind of love like but when you see how that phrase was actually used in that first century you realize it had this connotation of this day in day out caring for the sheep and in verses 17 and 18 just confirmed that this is the sort of vision of love that John had in mind when he was calling the churches to love each other 17 says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. So, the way of love for us is not simply to put off 
the bad, hateful, detesting feelings inside of our hearts, but to love like a shepherd, to be like the great shepherd, Jesus. To love not just with words, to not love just with affections internally, but to love with actions. That's how John defines love here. Uh, To quote the great 90s Christian band DC Talk, love is a verb, okay? Most of love in the New Testament is seen and experienced in action. And so we are called to love with hands and feet. We are called to love in action. We are called to love... It doesn't say just with your words, but in your action. And and, and then this kind of model that that copies Jesus, how how he daily cares for us, how he daily cared for his disciples, how he daily cared for others. And so anytime you're in the church and somebody in the church says, ah, man, you, uh, you're just too compassionate or you're too loving, you're too focused like on, on the, the works, the actions of love, just turn to them and say, I guess I'm just more biblical than you. <laughs> like, which is, it's just a fun, and I bring that up because that's a real example I've heard. Oh, you just, you, you're, you're doing too much to love people. You're, you're doing, and, and some, there's, you know, some people are a bit codependent, and you need to deal with that too, but, but a lot of times people will be bothered by how certain Christians love because it makes them uncomfortable. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. And I would just go, man, I, I do not see that in the New Testament. The New Testament knows nothing of a faith that just stays in our hearts and doesn't move us to actions of all sorts. And so we are called to notice this hate in us, and we are called to love, and we're called to love like a shepherd. So, what do we learn from this passage today? We as the church should notice when there is hate in us, in our hearts. We should see how serious hate is. The seeds of hate lead to the atrocity of murder. It's, again, it's not equating the two. But it's saying it's the same sort of heart, sin, seed in you. And then John reminds us that we are to be a people of love. Love is, is what's to course through our veins. Love is, is what's to, to animate our actions. And, and it's because of how Jesus has loved us. And then finally, how we love is like the good shepherd, laying down our lives for one another. And, and so I'll say this. That's, that's what we learned in the passage today. And, and for some in the room, and it's usually people that are really good at loving, that was a super motivating sermon. <laughs> like, yes. I'm going to go love some more. Like Kaylee in the back, she's like, this is it. I think, see, this is why I'm great. And I'm like, it is why you're great. Uh, but for others of us in the room, it's a little bit of a depressing sermon because you can see what's in your heart and you see this garden, this garden of hate in your heart. You're like, I got to deal with this. John has some strong words for this, and this feels, makes me feel condemned. And, and right off the bat, I just want to remind us, John is not trying to condemn us. He's trying to motivate us with this strong language. And it's a type of rhetoric he's using, apocalyptic. But we see this hate in our heart, and we hear Anthony talk about it for a few minutes, and we go, this just feels too tiring to be called to, 
to this way of love. I don't know if I can do it. And so, so a few thoughts before we leave. One, the only way to overcome hate, I think truly, is to see how much Jesus loves us. Is to be so secure in Jesus' love of us. One of the ways that I do that, this is just one way, I think there's all sorts of ways to look at Jesus' love and look at how he loves us, is that I look at the Gospels, I read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I see how Jesus loves people there, and I, I, I probably am reminded by the Holy Spirit even that that's how he loves me too. Like how he is loving each of the people that he encounters in the Gospels is how he loves me. And so we have to find ways to remind ourselves that Jesus has loved us, that Jesus has done so much to love us. Sometimes it's just simply like looking to the fact that he went to the cross for us, what he was willing to do there. One of the scenes that I look over time and time and time again to see how powerful Jesus' love is is the foot washing scene in John 13. He's washing everybody's feet, even Judas's feet. And that's how he loves you and me. And so I would just say this, if, if, if love seems impossible, if hate seems to be what is the only thing that can course through your veins, I would just encourage you, look at Jesus' love, seek it out. We in this state of things that are not quite as they should be, it's going to be harder for us to see Jesus' love at times. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. And so position yourself in a way to see Jesus' love, see how he's loved you. So when we love others, when we read this passage and we find out that we're supposed to be fueled by love, it will be fueled—not just fueled by love, but animated by love. Our love should be fueled by King Jesus' love of us. If not, you will get tired. And honestly, because things are not the way they're supposed to be until Jesus returns again, we'll still get tired when we love. And so we need to look to Jesus and his love and let his love be our strength. Like, I cannot love well without his love. I can love to the capacity that I want to. That's, that's about my strength. Because I think all humans are capable of immense love. That's about the level I can go. But the second it gets tiring, the second things come up, I, I, the narcotic of hate begins to rule me again. Okay, so... Find ways to, to remember Jesus' love, to see his love for you. And then I think the second thing to realize, if you're, if you're going, man, this sermon just feels kind of like tiring, like I'm not sure if I could do this, is, is to, remember, to remember this. The Christian faith is a journey. The Christian faith is a journey. John uses some strong language here to motivate us, to wake us up, not to condemn us. But we have to remember, even in the midst of that strong language that, that, that John is using, because we are human— because we live in this world, choosing love will be hard and choosing hate will be easy. Pressing into the way of Jesus, pressing into his way of love, it just goes against the grain of what the, what's in the world and what's in a lot of us. So, so often, my choice to love others, it feels tiring, it feels fake, it feels like just going through the motions. And so then I read a passage like this, and I go, am I even part of this thing? <laughs> and so if that's you, and maybe it's just me, so I'm reading this to myself. But if that's you, I want to read a parable of Jesus to you. This parable has really stood out to me the last few years. 
It's in Matthew 21, and it's verses 28 through 31. So Jesus is talking to people. He tells them a story. And he goes, what do you think? He says, a man had two sons. He went to the first, and he said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I don't want to. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other son and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did the father's will? And the people that Jesus was talking to, they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. I feel like that first son a lot as I follow Jesus. I, I just do. I feel like that first son a lot. I feel like Jesus goes, Anthony, love this way. Uh, I don't know. I know not, not today. Next time. Or here's why I don't have to. Boundaries. And... <laughs> And I feel tired, and I feel resistant. And then just like the Holy Spirit does something in me and just goes, okay, I'm going to have to help animate you to love well. And here's the good news, is that parable, you read it, and it's, <laughs> you're kind of like, the, the first son sounds like the worst. Like, at first, you're like, man, this guy sounds like the worst. <laughs> but the first son is who you want to be, in, in the parable, at least. There's just something about this life and how we follow Jesus, that at times it's going to look like that. And the, the point Jesus was making in that parable is that the unexpected are coming into the kingdom of God. So not to twist the parable. But I think a lot of us, because we are in the kingdom of God, we are the unexpected that have come into the kingdom of God. And because of that, we share the traits of that first son in a lot of ways, where it's hard for us to love, where it's hard for us to obey Jesus. And so I, I just read that parable to say, hey, that might be you, and that might be what your, your journey with love might be like. But because of the miracle of what Jesus' love has done to your soul, to my soul, we will end up working in the vineyard anyways. But it's good for us to notice it when, when we're not. And so the miracle of Jesus, he is putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. And he's doing that with love. And he's doing that with love in you. The more I read the New Testament, the more I go, man, God really wants to use his people to be his hands and feet, to be his love, to be who he is in the world. And that is hard for my Pentecostal growing up brain to comprehend. But that's what he wants to do. And so... One final thought. John, John is aiming this passage at the family of God because of what was going on in those churches. There was some kind of division and hate and lack of love, it seems like, in those churches among one another. And so John is particularly going, hey, you guys got to love each other. This is a huge part of who we are. This is a huge part of how people see God. And so with all of that that we just talked about in mind, I'll just say this. Can we love each other in this room well? Can we just start there? Can we love each other that, that exist in this room, in this church? Can we love each other well? Why or why not? Who do you avoid in this room? Why? What if you didn't avoid that person? What if 
you chose to love them? What if you chose to love them like a shepherd and try to meet their needs, whether their needs are physical or emotional? I think when we would, I think if we began to do that in healthy ways, in in Holy Spirit-fueled ways, I think we would all begin to get a glimpse of who God is and who the good shepherd is if we did that. So, church, may we be a people that look to the king of love, Jesus, and choose his way of love and not our natural ways of hate. And may we love not just in words, but in action. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have built the universe on your love. Help us to let uh, the metaphorical ambrosia of love just fill our veins and fuel us and strengthen us and be how we live life and be how we sustain life. God, I I, I do want to pray for everybody in the room that has a hard time believing that you love them. God, things are not the way they're supposed to be. I hate that it's so hard to convince convince myself and convince others that you love us. Um, And so, Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you would be merciful in this moment and that you would convince us of your love of us. Uh, God, then I just pray for us. I pray that, that we be a church that just don't listen to words and have really fun, poetic ideas about love, but that we are a church that loves in action, that we actually love people, that we actually do things to lay our lives down for each other. God, I'm thankful for this church because I have seen that in so many kinds of ways, but God, continue to press into us, press us into the depths of your love, press us into the depths of how you want us to love us. I know you've formed us and you've created us for good works, and I think all of those good works are rooted in, in love of others, probably, God, and so I pray that we become a church that embody and embrace that. Help us, God. Give us the eyes to see and, uh, and, and humble hearts to be corrected in this way. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Amen.